Well, go ahead and take a seat and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Last week we began looking at the church in Pergamum, verses 12 through 17. So just a, a little bit of a quiz for us as we dive back in part 2 of this letter to the church in Pergamum. Every single letter that Jesus writes in these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor all follow the same pattern of seven things. So number one, it starts off with what? It starts off with a greeting to, uh, to the angel of the church in whatever the city is. So far we've covered Ephesus and Smyrna, and now we're covering Pergamum. To the angel of the church in this city. It's a real city. These are real places. They are on a postal route, which would have gone in a circle around Asia Minor. So the greeting starts off every single letter. Secondly, what do we find? Number two, what do we find? A description of who Jesus is, what he looks like, who he is. And these are all taken from the descriptions of Christ that John saw in the vision at the end of chapter 1. Holding the stars in his hand, the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. And now here in Pergamum, the one who holds that sharp, double-edged sword in his hand. Remember, we looked at that last week. Uh, In the Greek, it's very slow, purposefully slow. The one who holds the sharp, the the one who holds the sword, the sharp one, the double-edged one, meant to give us pause. It's comforting, but it's also terrifying. Then thirdly, we always come to what? Number three, we always come to a declaration of what Jesus knows. I know something about the church. I know where you live. I know your deeds. I know Uh, who you do not tolerate. I know the teaching that's going on around you. I know something. Jesus knows, omnisciently knows everything that's going on in all of these churches and in our church as well. So a declaration of what Christ knows. This is what I know about the church. And after talking about what he knows about them, usually commending them for things, it always follows, except for two letters in these seven letters, it follows with what? Number four, criticism, but this I have against you. But I have one thing against you, yet I have these things against you. And in Pergamum, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. There's a list here. I've got a few things against you. That's followed up with a warning about that criticism, repent, an exhortation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, and a promise. So we got through those first four, a greeting, we looked at Pergamum in the city, we looked at Uh, how very similar it is to Los Angeles. We looked at the description of who Jesus is. We looked at the declaration of what he knows. They live where Satan lives. Satan dwells in their city. And yet they hold fast to Christ. Antipas, who maybe was a pastor in the church, uh, died by being placed inside of a bronze bowl that had been sculpted specifically for the purpose of killing Christians, and he was thrown inside of it, and it was placed over a fire, and he was burned to death alive inside of that bronze bowl. There are so many things to commend about this church, but we left off last week with the criticism, our fourth point in our seven-point outline, the criticism. I have these things, a few things against you, verse 14. And we talked about the two people groups that they were tolerating, the the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The teaching of Balaam, uh, Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. He was unable to do that because God would always pronounce a blessing as he was speaking the curses. He would pronounce a blessing. Balak said, this isn't what I hired you to do. And 
Balaam said, I can't go against what God's telling me to do. I can't go against God. If God wants to bless the people, he's going to bless the people. I can't curse them if he's wanting to bless them. But I will tell you this. If you want the people of Israel, if you want God's chosen people to be cursed by God, just have them intermarry in your people group, in the, the people of Moab, marry into the, the lineage of Moab, marry into their religion, be involved in sexual immorality, and God himself will judge and curse his people. And that's exactly what happened. Thousands, tens of thousands died on that very day. They tolerate the teachings of Balaam and they tolerate the teachings of the, the Nicolaitans. We've run into them a couple times now in these letters to the seven churches. The Nicolaitans also believed that you could become a Christian without repentance. You don't need to change anything. Just believe in Jesus, add him to your life, but you can live however you want to live. Be involved in pagan idol worship, be involved in temple prostitution, be involved in whatever you want to be involved in. It doesn't matter because Jesus has given you grace. You don't need to change. You don't need to turn. You don't need to repent. But you remember from last week, Jesus is not criticizing those people for holding those positions. Jesus is criticizing the leaders in the church for tolerating the people who hold those positions. The condemnation is not over the doctrinal waywardness of the minority. It's over the doctrinal nonchalance of the majority. Eh, you can have it, you can take it, however you want. It's the so what attitude of this compromising church. And we left last time by asking the question, so what are we supposed to do? How do we not wind up like them? How do we not tolerate false teaching, but at the same time be gracious, be loving, be compassionate? What are we supposed to do, both in the church and in our culture and our context? And so that's what we are going to spend our time this morning looking at. We will begin by looking at what do we do in repentance as God's going to call this church to repent? What do we do in not tolerating? How do we do this well? And then we'll finish out the rest of this letter. Let's read it together, and we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows except for him who receives it. Father, there are profound promises in this passage that we want to not only see, but we want to be taken hold of by them. We don't just want to stare at these promises and then walk away unchanged and unaffected. 
God, we want to be leveled to the ground by the reality of what sin ultimately does in the life of somebody who holds it, who clings to it, and who loves it. And we want to see the promises given to those who will renounce ungodliness, who will turn from sin to the Savior, and who will help others do likewise. God, teach us this morning by the power of your Spirit, according to your Word. We ask, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. So teach us now, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, last week we talked about uh, the, the condemnation over these people in the church uh, being tolerance, tolerating false doctrine, tolerating false teaching. And I, I said last week, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of our time this morning discussing the reality of what that looks like. What does tolerance and intolerance look like in our context and in our culture? I, I want to talk on a grand scale because I do believe that Pergamum is so similar to Los Angeles, and I think that we are going to find ourselves, if not already so, in a place where we're going to struggle in the culture like they struggled in their culture. So I want to talk on cultural grand level and then I want to move towards the church. Those are two different things, two different ways to deal with them. So let's start with the culture. Let's talk about tolerance in the culture. Everyone is ultimately intolerant of something. There's nobody that is not intolerant of something. Every society has lines that they draw. They're intolerant of something. But the question is, what does that mean? Tolerance used to mean, used to be defined as I disagree with and may even detest what you're saying and I think you're dead wrong but I will defend to the death your right to be able to hold that view that's what tolerance used to mean tolerance used to have a very clear definition I disagree with you but that's okay I can disagree with you peaceably and it won't affect the way that I respect you honor you and love you as a human being uh, Voltaire uh, is quoted most often as saying those words, I may detest you, but I defend to the death the right for you to hold the views that you hold. Today, tolerance has been completely redefined. Tolerance today says that it's wrong to say that someone is wrong. Tolerance today, if you are intolerant, it's because you have said that somebody's wrong. Tolerance used to mean you can say somebody's wrong, but you still love them and you don't dishonor them or disrespect them. Now, tolerance just means you can't say anybody's wrong. This makes it incredibly difficult. And I, I've, I've talked with many of you who are trying to have conversations with people, and you've run into this roadblock of intolerance. This makes it incredibly difficult to have reasonable conversations with people because at the very outset of you saying, I don't know if I agree with that, you're labeled as intolerant and the rest of the conversation is null and void. It doesn't matter. Somebody's not going to listen to you at that point. Uh, these are um, defeater beliefs. One pastor calls them defeater beliefs. If you hold to the fact that it's intolerant for somebody to disagree with something, to say something's wrong, then the moment you hear somebody say, I think that's wrong, you can just label them as intolerant and you don't listen to them anymore. This is what we're dealing with in our society and in our culture. Now, the older view of tolerance had three main presuppositions inside of it. Number one, it held that there is absolute truth. 
There is objective truth, and it is our duty to pursue what is true. Number two, it held that in a disagreement, each party that is discussing what's going on thinks that they hold what is true and that the other person is wrong. That's what the old tolerance used to mean. I think I'm holding what's true, and I think that you believe what's wrong. And number three, the third presupposition is that the best way to uncover the truth is to exchange ideas and work together to find out what is true. Have rational conversations, loving, gracious, compassionate conversations. But today, with the new tolerance, people who label others as intolerant just simply say all stances are valid. You can hold whatever you want to hold to. And if you question that, you're intolerant. So this new tolerance holds the view that there's no hierarchy of truth. All truth is relative. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can hold to whatever you want to hold. I just have the question, what about Nazism? Is that equally valid? What about the KKK? Is that equally valid? To have rational, reasonable conversations with people to say, wait, time out. There has to be a hierarchy of truth. You have to be able to label, that's not right. That's misguided. We've discussed a lot of these things even in our worldview understanding with our brother Marty in Sunday school. You have to be able to engage just logically, reasonably, compassionately in these conversations with people. So this new tolerance, this new definition of tolerance, ends up being two very specific things. It ends up being intellectually confused and morally bankrupt. And I get those two terms from D.A. Carson in his book, The uh, Intolerance of the New Tolerance, which I would recommend to you. It's a great book, The Intolerance of the New Tolerance. Two other books on this issue, uh, The Beauty of Intolerance by Josh McDowell and uh, The Ever-Loving Truth by Vody Bauckham. These are very helpful books that talk about the culture that we live in, what it looks like to be labeled intolerant. D.A. Carson writes in The Intolerance of Tolerance that the new tolerance is intellectually confused and morally bankrupt. Why? It's intellectually confused because words have completely lost their meaning. Just listen to this. Think with me here. You cannot ultimately speak of tolerance unless you disagree with somebody, right? I cannot tolerate you unless I have a disagreement with you, but I allow you to have that, and it's okay, and I will still love you. But in the new tolerance... They literally say, I cannot disagree with you, but I will still tolerate you. That makes no sense. I can't disagree with you, but I will still tolerate you. I'm unable to disagree with you, because to disagree would be intolerant. So I will tolerate you while never disagreeing with you. That makes no sense. It's intellectually confused. You have to be able to say, your views are fine for you, my views are fine for me, and yet we still tolerate each other. That makes no sense. To truly be tolerant, you have to be able to say, I disagree with you, and yet I will tolerate you. So it's intellectually confused. It's also morally bankrupt. It claims to be one thing, but without, uh, ultimately it does the exact opposite of what it claims to be. It claims to be tolerant, right? It claims we will let anybody hold any position. And you normally hear that when somebody's telling you, you are intolerant. Wait, you, let, you need to let me hold my view. If somebody says, you're not tolerant, and you ask, why am I not tolerant? And they say, because you can't tell somebody they're wrong. Just ask graciously, are you telling me that I'm wrong? Because if they're saying that you're wrong, then they're intolerant. They have just defeated morally their own statement. 
We live in this world. Just a test case from D.A. Carson's book regarding homosexuality. There was a woman who was a junior clerk in a company. She was a Christian, and a man came up to her and asked if she hated him because he was a homosexual and she was a Christian. I don't know if you've had that. I've had that. I've had that. Now, I have a much easier way to get into the gospel because of my job. I'll be at Starbucks. I've had a conversation with a lady at Starbucks who is a homosexual. And we were just dialoguing. We were having a great time talking about life and talking about our interests and what we love and what we do for work. And she was telling me what she does for work, very open about her lifestyle. And then she asked me what I did for my work. And I said, I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a pastor. And she said these exact words. Well, you must hate me. I said, why would I hate you? We were able to go into the truly intolerant Christians and make a bad name for those of us who desire to enter into relationships with people who disagree with us to, to help them understand the love of Christ and bring them to repent of sin. But this woman was asked by this man if this man, if she hated this man because he was a homosexual and she was a Christian, to which she said, of course not. I don't hate you. I love you. God loves you. She opened the Bible with him, or she, she talked about the Bible saying sin is sin, but we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. Jesus died to forgive us of sin. She, she said, no, I don't hate you. And he complained to HR that day that he felt threatened and diminished by this woman, and she, would, she was fired the next Monday in the name of tolerance. Do you realize the lunacy of that headline? In the name of tolerance, we declare this woman's wrong. If your tolerance is you can't tell anybody that they're wrong, then you can't say that she's wrong. Now, again, there are a lot more intolerant, or there are a lot of intolerant people, truly intolerant people in the Christian community regarding, again, the test case scenario of homosexuality. There are. We don't want to be like that, saying incredibly hateful things about the homosexual community. But if I can just be honest, I believe there's a lot more intolerance in the homosexual community about those who would say, I don't think that it's biblically allowable. I don't think that it's right. I don't think that it's righteous. It needs to be repented of. We're living in a day and age, Romans 1 is, is so clear, where no longer is it enough to simply pervert what God has clearly given to us as a gift. But now, if you want to live in this society, you need to champion those who are perverting it, right? The end of Romans 1. You not only do the sin yourself, but you give hearty approval to those who are doing the sin as well. We live in this. But again, with this new tolerance, if we want to engage in a discussion where I don't see this in the Bible as being okay, you're instantly labeled intolerant, and we can't have a rational, reasonable discussion. It's extraordinarily difficult to engage. I believe that Pergamum was the exact same place. It's a hard place to engage in these conversations. So what do we do? What do we do? Because we're heading in the direction of, and in some cases we're already there, where people lose jobs over this. They'll be fined, maybe imprisoned, all because we are not being tolerant. Things may get worse. God might bring a revival. Maybe they don't get worse. I'm not a prophet. I work for a non-profit organization, so I don't know the future. How should we address this in our culture today? Uh, I want to give you five ways that we can address this, and then we'll move into our text. Five ways that we can address. Some are from D.A. Carson, some are from myself. Number one, love people. Love people. 
Do not go on a hate binge. Don't, don't paint those who disagree with you as demons. Love them. Evangelize anyone and everyone with care, with interest, with love, with kindness. Love is powerful by itself. The impact of love is powerful by itself. So love people. Don't stop loving people. Number two, be prepared to suffer. Be prepared in this culture to suffer. What should we do living in a day of such strange intolerance? Be prepared to suffer. Don't lash out. Trust in Christ. Number three, know the truth and be prepared to reasonably defend it with love. Know the truth and be prepared to reasonably defend the truth with love. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Some of you memorized this verse. If you graduated from Sunday school, you know this verse. We need to know the truth and be prepared to reasonably defend it with love. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ. And as we learned this morning, that word but has a contrast, has a connection. It's a conjunction for us to look backwards. So let's look at verse 13. Who is there to harm you, even if you prove zealous for what is good? So you're doing good. People are, are harming you. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. This is the day that we live in. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But instead, don't be fearful. But instead, set apart or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense or to, to give a reason, to give a, a rational response, an argument. It's the Greek word apologia, where we get our idea of apologetics, to defend the truth that you believe. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. So know the truth so that you can give an answer that's reasonable and rational with love and respect, with gentleness and kindness. Number four, compassionately challenge. Compassionately challenge. If we are going to live in this world doing a good job of not tolerating false teaching and sin, we need to do so compassionately challenging people. And sometimes we're going to have to stick up for our own understanding of the law. This is going to be hard to do in the days ahead. And we see this even work itself out with Paul and with Jesus, right? There were times that Paul was beaten for the gospel and he kept silent and he just took it. And then there were times that he said, hey, I don't think that you're allowed to do that to a Roman citizen, right? You're not allowed to do that. So there were times he spoke up. There were times he spoke up that said, you're not allowed to do this. And then there were times that he stayed silent. Same thing with Jesus. There were times that he stayed silent before his accusers on Friday morning of the Passion Week. There were times that he spoke. There were times that he spoke. Remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, say, prophesy, who hit you? And, and he says, what, what, what am I here for? They ask him, uh, what, what, what have you done? What is your teaching? And he says, you were with me in the synagogues. You were with me in the temple. You heard me. So there's, there's a time to speak up compassionately, graciously, and there's a time to be silent. And we're going to have to ask God to give us wisdom as to when the right time is. Uh, there might be a time to stand up and challenge an issue because we might be bearing the full brunt of that force 
for Christians that are coming behind us. There might be somebody that's going to come behind us that a decision that we make and we decide to challenge, maybe politically, maybe legally, we decide to challenge, we do so preparing others behind us to be able to share the gospel. We need to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We need to be just like we've learned in Esther, right? Esther has helped us in so many ways to learn there's a time, such a time as this, there's a time to stand up, there's a time to be silent, there's a time to speak, there's a time to win favor. So love people, be prepared to suffer, know the truth, compassionately challenge. Fifth, and, and finally, be happy. Be happy. Don't go around scared. Don't go around frightened. God will build his church, and the gates of hell will never stand against it. So be joyful, be an obedient Christian, be joyful, be as we learned from the church in Smyrna, be fearless and faithful, and just let God be the one who's going to sort it all out. Nobody, uh, God, God is not indebted to anybody. He'll sort it all out perfectly in eternity. So that's tolerance with regard to the culture. Now, that's not what Jesus is referring to specifically here in Revelation chapter 2. So turn back to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, he is referring to tolerance inside of the church. These are professing believers that are in the church, living among the fellowship of the church that hold to sinful patterns and false teaching. What do we do with them? I think that the pattern in Scripture is very clear. Matthew 18, if somebody is a professing believer, you go to them if you see a pattern of sin or a progression of disobedience against God's word, you go to them. They would want that, right? They know they're professing to be believers, and they want help in following Christ. So if they genuinely are saved, in the process of Matthew 18, of just lovingly asking, hey, how does this align with God's word? How does this fit in with what God's word has said? If you follow that pattern, a genuine believer will invite that. Maybe they'll kick against it at the beginning. We're not mature people, not a one of us. Maybe we'll kick against it, but ultimately we're going to say, please, I'm so thankful that you're showing me and I want to follow Jesus. If they're not genuinely saved, that process brings to light the fact that their profession isn't real. They may profess to be believers, but they're not genuinely saved. What about if they hold the false teaching? Titus is very clear. You skip Matthew 18 altogether. You don't go through process of, hey, we need to, if they hold the false teaching and they're telling that in the church, you reject the, factu the factious man that Titus tells us to reject. If they're trying to lead people astray with their false doctrine, you say, that's false. This is what's true according to the Word of God. Now, some people would say that is unloving. Here's why I believe it's absolutely loving. Let's dive into our text. Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Number five in our outline of our seven points is the warning. And the warning is in verse 16. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. So that's turn from what you're doing. A change in your thinking that leads to a change in your living. Turn from what you're doing. Why? Or else... I, Jesus, am coming to you, pastors and leaders in the church, quickly. But I'm not going to make war with you. Who is he going to make war with? He's going to make war with the people who hold those false doctrines, the false teaching, the sinful practices. 
People would say, well, it's very unloving to confront somebody in sin. It's very unloving to tell somebody that their doctrine's wrong. That's not a very loving thing to do. This is why Jesus says that's the most loving thing you can do. Because Jesus is coming to judge them. Jesus is about to judge them, and if you remember what he's going to judge them with, verse 12, with the sharp two-edged sword, he is going to destroy them unless they repent. Therefore, you can stand in the way between God's judgment and their just punishment. You can stand in the way and say, please repent, please turn. You can show them. This is the end of James, right? Somebody who shows in the air of their ways will turn them from death. You can show them that. Do that lovingly. Do that with kindness. Do that with gentleness. Do that with compassion. Speak the truth in love. But it's ultimately the most unloving thing that you can do to simply say, eh, we'll let it go. We're, we're tolerant after all. We'll just let it go. Because God is coming to judge those people. And if you truly love them, you will say with humility in your heart, you're no better than they are, you will, you will truly say with compassion and humility, please turn. Turn with me to cherish and love and follow Jesus. Or else he's coming to judge. The most loving thing that you can do is not leave them alone. No, we'll, we'll leave them alone. Let God judge them. No, Jesus here is saying, I'm going to judge them, so stop the process before I show up. We, we talk often in uh, my high school classes about living in this day and age. And um, somebody was asking me recently, again, how, how we need to have reasonable responses, rational responses to why uh, the Bible says what it says and, and um, say these things with grace and compassion. Somebody asked me, what, why does God uh, have the rules that he has about sex and sexuality and sexual immorality? Why, why does he have the rules about those things? And, Long story short, I, I, I told them one of the examples that I use that's helpful for me to illustrate in my own mind uh, regarding sex. Is to, it's a good gift that God has given. Uh, he invented it, right? We don't get to attain, uh, change it, make it what we want. He copyrighted it. He owns it. And it's a good thing. It's like fire. If it's in the right place, it's in the right context, it's enjoyable, it's pleasurable, it, it's, it's a good thing. You take it out of its context and you see the devastation that we have in front of us in all these wildfires. And with tears in her eyes, the student said to me, yes, but isn't Jesus a firefighter? Won't he show up and stop the fire? He talked about the devastation that her own choices had led in her own life to severe consequences, and she said, yes, the fire's out of control. It's a wildfire in my life. But is Jesus a firefighter? And that's where you're able to say, he can bring salvation. Turn from sin. Follow Christ. Repent today. And you don't have to meet him as judge. You can meet him as friend, as redeemer, as savior. So it's not loving for us to say, oh, we'll just let God judge. If you ever see me doing something wrong, saying something wrong, which happens often, acting in a way that's incorrect, it's unbiblical, it's sinful, please talk to me because I would rather have that conversation, however awkward it might be with you, than to have that conversation with God on the last day. 
I want to help, I want to fix this now before I stand before him. This is one of my pet peeves, if you'll allow me to share a pet peeve. When people leave the church, and I hear that they've left the church, and I talk with them afterwards, and I ask, why didn't you leave? Totally fine. Why'd you leave? Are you plugging in somewhere else? And they say, well, there was this one person, and they just kept doing this thing. My question is, oh, wow, did you talk to them? Nah, that's too awkward. I didn't want to talk to them. I just feel like we missed an opportunity right there. Maybe you, for such a time as this, were the person that God placed in this church to help them see their sinful habits. And instead of engaging, it's awkward, it's weird, it's difficult. That's why we all just bathe ourselves in the grace of the gospel and the love of Christ. And we know no one's better than anybody else. And we're all helping each other. We're all just failures at the foot of the cross that are all redeemed by Jesus' blood. But we need to help each other and, and step in lovingly to those awkward conversations. Maybe we miss them and we just, because of fear of man, just like Pergamum that we talked about last week, because of fear of man, we say we, we don't want to talk. Now, the application for me specifically at this moment is that the most loving thing that I can do right now is to warn some of you. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you do not love him more than you love anything in this world, you might believe everything true about who Jesus is. You're just, you're just as knowledgeable as a demon is. If you don't love Jesus, surrender your life to him. If you have your own authority over his, Jesus says things, I say things, and when I don't like what Jesus says, he bows to me. That's not salvation. And I want to plead with you this morning to deny yourself, take up your cross, a, a weapon that was used by Rome to murder people, execute your own will, kill your own desires, destroy your own affections, and let what God desires and what God wants and what God's will is live and reign through you. Then and only then will you see fruit that's appropriate, the deeds appropriate to repentance. Then and only then will you see God working in your life to change your desires, to change your affections. Today is the day to turn and follow Jesus Christ. It would not be a loving thing for me to say, you know what, do whatever you want. No, no, sin is never worth it. And it will always bring death in the end. Turn, repent, trust in Jesus. The sword that Jesus wields in verse 12 is comforting to believers who are being attacked. And it's terrifying to non-believers. Because God has all authority and his judgment is coming. And we must respect his sword. So I, I don't believe that we are going to face some frontal attack by the culture in persecution or uh, snuffing out Christianity in our context. I believe it's going to be slipping through the cracks, just like we see here, of slowly but surely tolerating, compromising, and allowing these things to exist. Therefore, repent. Turn now. That's the warning. Repent, or else I'm coming quickly, and I will make war with them, with the edge of the sword. That leads us to number six, the exhortation, which is verse 17. If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
This is an exhortation to wake up. It's an exhortation to press into what Jesus is saying. Don't just hear it at face value, but press in. Where am I in this? What do I believe about these things? Where am I in submission to Christ? Where am I in my affections for Christ? Do I love him more than I love sin? Is there a pattern, not perfection, but just progression in my fight against sin? Is there a fight in my heart to desire Jesus more than I desire sin? These are all questions that when Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. These are all questions that should be popping up in our hearts as we're pressing into these words. Are we tolerating things in ourselves first and foremost? Please, brothers and sisters, don't become the tolerance police outside of us first and foremost. Look inward. Am I tolerating sin? Am I telling others they're not allowed to do something that I'm totally fine doing myself? Am I a hypocrite? Let God's word bring us to our knees in humility and ask him to show us in our own hearts, where am I in this letter? That leads to number seven, the promise. This is verse 17, end of verse 17. To him who overcomes, there's our Greek word, Nike again, Nico, the the one who wins, the victor, the overcomer. Jesus promises two profound things to those who overcome. To the overcomer, I will give, number one, the hidden manna. I will give him the hidden manna. You remember manna was only good for that one day that God gave it, right? God gave it out of heaven. It was only good for that day and it would spoil, except for the exception in Exodus chapter 16, verses 32 through 34, when God said to take uh, an, uh, an omer, a scoop of an omer, which is about 2.5 liters, so uh, two partially filled two-liter bottles of soda, scoop it up, put it into the Ark of the Covenant, and that manna will never rot. It will never go bad. And it was a symbol that God will always feed his people. He will always provide for his people. Hebrew tradition tells us that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant when the Babylonians tried to break into Israel and ultimately to Jerusalem to destroy the temple. And their tradition says that when Messiah returns, when he shows up, that he's going to go in, find the ark, bring it out, and give of that manna. Now that's tradition, and especially the second part we wouldn't agree with because Messiah has already shown up in Jesus Christ. He is our Messiah. But this hidden manna has a twofold, uh, already not yet effect. It's already here because we have been given in a Deuteronomy 8 sort of way, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, We've been given the word of God, the hidden manna of God that provides for our needs on a daily basis. And he will never let us go without his word. He'll never let us go without the nourishment and satisfaction of his word. But I don't think that that's the ultimate reason why this is such a great promise. This is hidden manna that will be given down the road. So it's an already, yes, we have some of it now, but it's a not yet. There's some to come in the future. And I believe that this is a reference to the the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we finally get to sit down at that table in the great banquet hall in heaven, and we get to feast with Christ himself, who is the bread of life. And we get to enjoy him for all of eternity, and we will never not have him ever again. We will get the hidden manna. We will feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But it doesn't just stop there. 
we will get the hidden manna, and secondly, we will get a, a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. A white stone. Back then, instead of having little paper tickets, you would have a stone, and that stone would be your ticket. So instead of saying, do you have Laker tickets? You'd say, do you have Laker rocks? I need Laker rocks for the game tonight. The white stone was an entrance into a, uh, a sports a competition, some festival. Also, the white stone was given to the one who won at the end of the competition. You would receive a white stone that would enable you to get access into uh, the party after the competition happened. So this was the celebration of the victory that you just won. So not anyone could just show up. If you were not assigned to that party list and your name was not engraved on that stone, you could not enter the party. You could not enter the, the festival. So this is some token of entrance. It's access. It's gaining you access. And there's a new name that's on it. It's a new name. People ask, well, what's the name? I don't know because it says no one knows. <laughs> so I don't know. I do know this. It shows us that there's individuality in heaven, not just all some androgynous robotic people. You get a, a stone as access into your final celebration festival in heaven itself for all of eternity. You get a stone that has a name on it that nobody knows except for you and God. There's individuality. Whatever that name is, it must be precious. Maybe it's something that God knows is precious between you and him, your relationship. Maybe your stone, you'll look at it and you will just cry tears of joy and, and you'll show it to somebody next to you and they'll look and go, I have no idea what that means. And they don't get it, but you get it, because God knows you personally. The new name, as one author says, will serve as each believer's admission pass into eternal glory. It will uniquely reflect God's special love for and adoption of every true child of His. And this is a great analogy that Jesus is using in this specific church, because nobody knows who's going to receive that white stone or what the name is until that final day. Nobody knows. Just like in Pergamum, in this church, there are people there that hold to the truth. There's people that don't hold to the truth. And, and there's no real division. You can fake out a lot of people with your profession of faith, but you can't fool the Lord. He knows exactly whose are His. And if you belong to Him, you are His. And He will give you of Himself at the banquet table, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, he'll give you entrance and access into that celebration with that ticket, that white stone. So brothers and sisters, let's not isolate. We talked about this last week. Jesus nowhere says, I know you live where Satan dwells, so get out. Go somewhere else. Let's not isolate. Let's not withdraw. Let's live out Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, pressed into the mold of this world. This world wants us to act a certain way, think a certain way, feel a certain way, and be a certain way. And Paul says, don't be conformed, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the truth invade your mind and change the way you live your life. A lot of people would ask, yeah, but if you just know truth, it leads to dead orthodoxy. And I believe that there are some, even in this church in Pergamum, that might think the exact same thing. Just dead orthodoxy, head knowledge alone. And therefore, they flip it to say, well, it's better to have living heresy than dead orthodoxy. It's better to just have something that's powerful and effectual and, and it looks like it's working, even if it's not really true. If we have dry theology... 
If we have dead orthodoxy, first see the church in Ephesus, we talked about that, but secondly, don't combat dry theology with living heresy. Don't then go, well, that looks better. Press into your theology until you understand why it should absolutely radically inflame your hearts for Christ and change your affections for Him. We need inflamed hearts based on informed minds. That's why we need the gospel. You know, there's one other uh, meaning for this white stone. There's one other way that this white stone was used back in uh, Asia Minor at this time. If you were on trial before a judge and you were accused of a crime and you were found to be innocent, guiltless. The judge would give you a white stone that you could hold forever. If anyone ever were to say, no, I know who you are. I saw you. You were on trial. Maybe you were in jail. I know that you're guilty. You could hold that stone up and say, no, I'm innocent. It declared that you were not guilty. Brothers and sisters, we were in that courtroom. God was our just judge. But instead of being innocent and graciously told, yeah, you didn't do anything wrong, here's a a stone to show you that you're innocent. The verdict came down, you are guilty. You've broken every law that there is to break. You, You are a sinner. And because you are not perfect, you deserve the penalty of your imperfection, the penalty of your sin, which is eternal separation from God forever in hell. And as the gavel's about to go down, and we in our handcuffs look at God, our judge, and say, we're hopeless, what can we do? We cry out, mercy. Mercy, not on the basis of who I am. Not on the basis of my goodness. I am guilty. I deserve hell. But we cry out for mercy as we see that the judge, bringing his gavel down, has brought in his son who has nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet and a a thorn-pierced brow. And he looks at us and he says, I have paid your penalty. I have paid your fine. I have done your time. And it's finished. There's not one second of time left for you to pay. There's not one ounce of the penalty left for you to bear. You're free. And not just free. Before we get up and our chains are released and we're walking out of that courtroom declared free, the judge puts the gavel down and he takes out a stone and he washes it white and he gives it to us and he doesn't just say free to go. He says not guilty on any of the charges placed in front of you. There is not one charge that stands against you. And oh, we walk around with that rock in our pockets and we walk around and the devil condemns us. You've sinned again. You deserve death. Our friends may condemn us. You've sinned again. I don't think I want to forgive you this time. I'm going to harbor bitterness. Who knows what it is, but we can take that rock out and say before the the judge of the universe, the God who is God, very God, above all other people, all other authorities, all other opinions, we hold that rock out and say, he has declared me not guilty. 
Therefore, it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of me. Because before God, I'm free. If that reality does not inflame your heart with praise to God, then you need to go back and remind yourself of the gospel over and over again until you cannot help but praise him. God, thank you so much for your amazing grace. We stand in awe of the fact that we have been declared not guilty. Not just free to go, but not guilty. That is an unbelievable reality. And because of that, we want to just say thank you. We want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you and your grace have given us that stone declaring us completely innocent, not guilty. You've given us the gift of eternal life, access and entrance into heaven to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We want to say thank you with our lips, yes, as we sing. But we want to do so much more than that. We want to say thank you with our lives as we encourage others to follow Christ lovingly, humbly speaking to them the words of truth straight from our gracious King and our great high priest.